Hey folks, welcome to another podcast. This one I'm going to talk about some confusing terms in the fitness industry. And this came up because as I'm kind of working through this programming course that I'm writing at the moment, there's a lot of language there that I have to sort of clarify and define and it's eating up a fair bit of time trying to make sure that it's understandable. Um, you know, I'm a really big fan of something that Steven Pinker wrote in his book, which was, man, what was the writing book called? I can't quite remember. But uh, there was a book on writing that Steven Pinker wrote where, I think, uh, Sense of Style, that's what it's called. And he just sort of described how even scientific papers and scientific language is often over-convoluted and it just sort of obfuscates the meaning of it. And as I use a, a complicated word there, it just kind of uh, puts mud in your eyes as to the meaning of what the authors are actually talking about and makes it much more difficult to comprehend whether or not you understand the terms or not. So anyway, I thought what I would do is maybe just go through some of these phrases or words that we use in fitness a lot and just clarify exactly what they mean in different contexts because typically the academic meaning of the word is quite different to the colloquial way that it's being used. So I'm thinking of things here like progressive overload, protein synthesis, um, fatigue, lean mass, intensity, failure or training to failure, what that means, hypertrophy, water, uh, stress, that kind of stuff. So I guess I'll dive straight in and I'm sure there's some stuff that I've forgotten. So if there are any that you think of that you think maybe it would be a good idea to address, please let me know. You can always message me on Instagram or send me an email, luke at lukatalik.com and Maybe we'll do an episode two if there are enough to go over again. So let me start with the main daddy here, progressive overload, which is a frustrating term because it has the word load in it, <laughs> which automatically means we think about the load on the bar, of course. And so it's a little bit unfortunately named. So when we think of progressive overload, it's basically a requirement that as we train, if we want to get stronger or if we want to build more muscle, Training's got to get harder over time, and that's because we adapt to our current level of training, and it's therefore no longer as stimulative as it used to be, and therefore we need to increase the difficulty at some point. So when I first started training, bench pressing 40 kilos was enough for me to grow my pecs and to get stronger, but right now it's a pathetic warm-up for me, right? And this kind of happens in, in every physical domain, whether it's running and jumping or anything, right? So progressive overload kind of implies when people say that, okay, progressive, that makes sense. Overload, okay, so I need to load more on the bar. That's the only way I can get more muscle. And that is certainly one way. But I think it gets a little bit confusing because there are more ways to make training difficult than simply putting more load on the bar. Now, I do think the typical way of progressing or the, the easiest, most objective way to understand progression is one of two ways. Either you've got to lift the same weight for more reps than you previously did, or you've got to do the same number of reps and just lift more weight, right? So there's kind of two ways you can do it there. And those are the main ways, but you can certainly make exercises more difficult without manipulating those. You could manipulate the tempo. You could add pauses. 
you could use a more difficult variation of an exercise. There's a variety of things that we can do there. We can even play around with things like rest periods and so on. Um, and that will make things more difficult over time, meaning that we can still make progress. And I think the frustrating part about this is that sometimes people think that if they're not adding weight on a really, really regular basis, that they're not actually making progress or they're not providing some sort of stimulus to the muscle. So to give a more concrete example, let's say you're able to squat 100 kilos for 10 reps week one. I think it's implied by using this sort of progressive overload idea that maybe the next week you should be able to squat 101 kilos or 102.5 kilos for 10 reps. Uh, or certainly that over a couple of workouts, you should be able to do that. And the reality is, is that sometimes you're not really going to be able to progress weight that aggressively. Just It's just not really physically possible, right? And if somehow you're now capable of doing 102.5 kilos that your previous workout of 100 kilos is now no longer good enough to allow you to progress at an optimal rate. And that's just not really true, right? Like that, if you are capable of doing 102.5 for 10 reps, like sure, go ahead and do that. But if you do 100 for 10 reps, it doesn't mean that suddenly you're not getting any stimulus at all and you're not gonna get stronger and you're not gonna grow. It's still gonna be a really powerful stimulus. It's just not quite as strong as maybe what you're capable of now. And in the short term, I'm not sure it actually makes any difference. In the long term, of course, if you're not taking those opportunities to kind of increase load or, or increase the difficulty of an exercise by small increments, then it starts to add up. And perhaps after six months or a year, it's like, yeah, now you could have been capable of lifting 120 for 10 reps, but you're kind of stuck on 100. Sure, that's going to be a significant difference. Um, but it just gets a bit confusing with this idea of progressive overload, or if you don't progressively overload, you're not going to get any better. In fact, I kind of just like to simplify it. You should just try really hard, right? Instead of going, well, last week I lifted 100 for 10. This week I have to lift 102.5. It's like, just try your hardest. And if you happen to lift 102.5, awesome. It's revealing your progress. Sometimes I think we get the directionality confused. In other words, it's not really like increasing the weights per se that is driving your progress. It's the fact that you have trained and gotten better and adapted that allows you to now lift a heavier weight. So it's more a reflection of your progress than anything. Um, so anyway, I think just like getting in and working hard in the gym is sort of sufficient to satisfy the progressive overload principle. So that's the first one I think is really confusing because we can improve by making exercises harder, but it doesn't have to be by increasing load and the load increase doesn't have to be that frequent necessarily. All right, the next one I wanted to address is protein synthesis. Uh, because we talk about protein synthesis quite a lot in the context of growing muscle. And maybe hypertrophy is another one I want to bring up, or hypertrophy. Uh, sorry, I don't know what that accent was. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. So when muscles grow, they can increase the sort of structural components, right? And those structural components of the muscle are built out of amino acids, and amino acids are built into proteins. So you can kind of think about it like the amino acid is like a Lego brick, and you take these Lego bricks and you put them together in a certain pattern, and then that builds a larger structure, like a, a car or a house or whatever it is, and that's like a protein structure. 
And all of these protein structures are kind of put together in a cell and that makes up all of the components. So some of the contractile tissues of the muscle fiber uh, or the contractile components of the muscle fiber are built out of proteins. And so when we say protein synthesis in the context of growing muscle, what we really mean is muscle protein synthesis. And usually what we more specifically mean is like those contractile elements like the myosin and the actin and all this sort of stuff that actually make up the the contractile parts of the muscle fiber. But that gets a little bit confusing when we start referring to how nutrition affects protein synthesis because, you know, when we train, like, yes, we're going to get some protein synthesis and it kind of implies that, well, since we're contracting our muscles, it's obviously going to be muscle protein synthesis for the most part. But when we eat protein and we get an, a boost in muscle in, in protein synthesis, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of that is muscle protein synthesis there is total body protein synthesis happening as well. Like proteins make up a huge proportion of the stuff in our bodies that gets things done, that gets our metabolism going, that makes us function. Immune cells, uh, various cell signaling molecules, different parts of different cells, like all of your organs have all of these specialized cells that have certain components. And all of those things are built out of proteins. And so when we say protein synthesis and we sort of refer to total body protein synthesis, what we actually mean is that like pretty much there's so much stuff that's being made in the body out of proteins. And we don't necessarily specifically mean muscle protein synthesis when you eat some protein and you see an increase in protein synthesis in the body. So sometimes you'll see things like, oh, well, you know, you get a really big boost in protein synthesis with 20 grams of protein or something. And it's like, yeah, you do. But if our goal is to maximize muscle protein synthesis, we might need a bit more protein. Because if we ingest 20 grams of protein and we see that protein synthesis in the body goes up, that's cool. But that 20 grams of protein has to be distributed between all of these different tissues that are trying to synthesize proteins. Our liver and our lungs and our kidneys and like everything else in our body essentially is synthesizing proteins and it needs to take that protein that we ate and take the amino acids, the Lego blocks that it's built out of and break that apart and then build it into its own little protein structures. And that means that there's probably not that much left over for muscle tissue. And so sometimes I think we get a little bit confused by saying, well, you don't need like in a meal, you only need X amount of grams of protein to see a big spike in protein synthesis. Yeah, but you know, maybe we're not talking about muscle protein synthesis. Maybe we're talking about total body protein synthesis. Or someone might say, well, you know, uh, 20 grams of protein or 40 grams of protein in a meal maximizes muscle protein synthesis. Well, that's cool, but we still want to have enough protein to maximize whole body protein synthesis, don't we? So maybe we need a little bit more. So anyway, I think that's just a little bit confusing and we often see MPS or muscle protein synthesis. And I get the sense that a lot of people don't really understand what the relevance is. Ultimately, if we want to grow muscles, what we want is to spike up muscle protein synthesis repeatedly. And over time, it sort of accrues and slowly but surely our muscles kind of get bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, so I guess that's the relevance there. And it's a little bit of a confusing term, I think. Sometimes. I mean, similarly, uh, a confusing term in this sense is lean mass, which is kind of related. So you'll often see this in studies where they're measuring like, you know, body fat percentage versus lean mass. And sometimes people will come to me with uh, a DEXA scan or something and they go, oh, you know, I've been dieting and I've lost some fat, but it also says here I've lost muscle. 
And I said, where does it say lose muscle? Well, if you, <laughs> what was that sentence? I don't think that made any sense. Where does it say that you lost muscle? Um, by the way, this is going to be completely unedited, so you get to see all of the little quirks of me just spitting into this microphone and completely fucking it up as I go along. So they've seen that their lean mass has gone down on the DEXA. And the issue with that is that lean mass basically means anything that's not fat, which could mean water underneath your skin. It could mean glycogen stored in your muscles. It could mean contractile protein in muscle. It could mean contractile protein in smooth muscle or your you know, uh, other organs. It could mean organ mass in general. It could mean um, food residual that's sitting in your gut. All of these things are not fat and therefore classified as lean mass. And so when we see a reduction in lean mass from you dieting, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've lost muscle. It might mean that your muscles are slightly smaller because the, the glucose and uh, stores in the muscle, which is called glycogen, is now lower because you're eating less carbohydrate and this kind of thing. Um, and so it's pretty common if you get some kind of scan to see that, oh, my lean mass has gone down alongside my body fat and then you start panicking that you're losing muscle. When in reality, it just means your lean mass is down. It doesn't mean your muscle mass is down. Similarly, if you were to say, take a DEXA scan and go, ah, I see my my body fat's gone down and my lean mass has gone up and therefore I've lost all of this body fat and I've gained muscle at the same time. Well, it's probably not the case unless you're in a really specific category of person. So for example, obese people or beginners tend to be able to lose a, a significant amount of body fat and gain a significant amount of muscle at the same time. But for most other people, it's not that likely. And so in this case, what's probably happening is that you've got more water retention or more food in your gut compared to the last time you had the scan or more glycogen in your muscles or something. Like that. So again, lean mass is something that gets a little bit confusing sometimes. And I think the main application here is when you're getting body scans and things. So just something to keep an eye on. Now, another major thing as it relates to training that has really been prominent for me as I go through and create this programming course is the concept of fatigue. And it's really important because we need to understand fatigue because it tells us essentially how much training we can do and how to allocate things like volume, how to think about exercise order, how to think about rep ranges and exercise selection and a whole bunch of different things. Uh, but there's obviously a colloquial sort of term of fatigue, which basically means feeling tired. And that's not the same as fatigue in the context of training. Fatigue in training just means a reduction in performance. And that can happen on a short-term basis or it can happen on a long-term basis. I actually have a lot of other materials sort of explaining this, but I'll give a, a brief overview here. So what happens is as you train, fatigue comes in. For example, let's say I have a really hard training session and I start off doing a ton of like heavy deadlifts. Uh, it means that any exercises I do after that are going to be somewhat affected because I'll be fatigued from my deadlifts. I'll obviously have some subjective fatigue, like I'll just feel tired. But what we actually mean by fatigue in this context is that your ability to produce force and to perform is temporarily reduced because you've used a bunch of resources in contracting all of this muscle and now I just can't perform as well. So um, if I do like five sets of heavy deadlifts that are really hard and then I go afterwards and I do some walking lunges and I do some leg presses and then I finish off with 
some leg extensions. Like by the time I get to the leg extensions, my performance is not going to be as good as it would have been if I did the leg extensions first in the workout. And that's because of fatigue. So it happens during a session, which has implications for our exercise order and our exercise selection. But it also happens over the course of, say, a training week or a longer term, right? So as an example here, if I did a really, really hard leg session on Monday, and then I came in again on Tuesday and asked you to do another really, really hard leg session, you're not going to perform to the same level. Why? Well, you've got fatigue. Maybe there's muscle damage and a whole bunch of other things that are contributing to fatigue. I won't get into all the causes of it because it gets very technical. But the idea is basically like there's this time lag where you're temporarily unable to perform to the same level. Now, you might be sort of back to normal and able to perform well again in two or three or four days time. But there's this period in between where your performance is going to be down. And that means your ability to stimulate muscle and therefore get stronger or grow more muscle is reduced. And so this has implications for, you know, how often we train and how much volume we do in each session. So this concept of fatigue is like fundamental to how we set up training. But I think that we get confused with the perception of fatigue or the subjective feelings of fatigue. Sometimes you'll feel subjectively fatigued, you'll feel kind of crap, but you'll go into the gym and be able to still perform really well. And it's important to have that distinction of really understanding what we mean by fatigue, because if we don't really understand that term, then it's difficult to truly understand its implications for things like, you know, like I mentioned, exercise order, exercise selection, um, your training split, your training frequency, how much volume you're doing. Uh, so I'd highly recommend if you are so inclined to learn a little bit more about fatigue. And like I say, I've got some material out there. I did a previous podcast uh, called Clearing Up Fatigue, I think. So you know, if you want to go have a listen to that, hopefully I explain it well enough. If I don't, then please let me know and I'll find another way of um, making it clear. I'd really like to get your feedback on that because sometimes things make sense to me, but uh, <laughs> I don't explain them in a way that makes sense to you. Cool. Uh, now, another one in the training realm is intensity. And intensity, again, is something that has a colloquial sort of meaning of like feeling hard. But in weightlifting or resistance training in general, intensity actually has a different meaning. And there's, there's sort of a couple of different ways that we can use intensity. Intensity is basically measuring how hard a set is, but it, it doesn't have anything to do necessarily, again, with subjective feelings. Uh, traditionally, intensity was just used to mean load on the bar. And typically that was expressed as a percentage of your 1RM. So if I were to ask you, uh, yeah, what intensity are you working at with your squats today? You might say, oh, I'm doing sets of five at 80% of 1RM or something. Uh, so you're, you're basically telling me what weight you're using. Now, more recently, there's been uh, a movement. So we, we would call that absolute intensity or intensity of load. But there's also another version of intensity, which is relative intensity. And this is basically trying to describe, okay, for a given load, how close to failure am I getting on this set? I'm going to talk about failure in a second as well. But uh, this is where RPE or reps and reserve come in. And the idea here is that you're just trying to describe, okay, I'm lifting, you know, 100 kilos, but like how difficult was this set? Was it like... I'm able to do 10 reps at 100 kilos, but I'm only doing five reps with it. Or am I capable of doing 10 reps and I'm going all the way to failure and I'm doing 10 reps? Because those obviously are, are pretty different looking sets. And so that's what we mean by intensity is not like 
necessarily how difficult did that set feel, but more how close to failure were you or how much load did you use? Uh, so it's a, it's a good thing to just kind of keep an eye on because if you ever see any discussions around programming or periodization or anything like that, then you know typically the the idea of intensity is going to be talked about in that context rather than like, yeah, I, I got really psyched up for my lift. And so I was, I was super intense when I lifted that one, you know. So let's move on to failure then because I just mentioned that. Uh, again, I think there has to be a kind of good definition around failure because sometimes what happens is we view failure in a different way and we're not talking about the same thing when we talk about training to failure or, or you know, if we use reps in reserve or, or RPE, we need to understand what we mean by failure. And generally speaking, I try to view it as like a technical breakdown. So if you look in the literature, when they say failure, they'll usually use this term called volitional failure. And volition implies like free will, essentially. So if I say volitional failure, it's like you've chosen to terminate the set. Um, and so in the research, when we're trying to figure out, okay, is it better to go to failure or stop short of failure? It's really important to have a look at what exactly are the researchers using to define failure? Because if it's volitional failure, then what it means is that they've asked the participants to do as many reps as they can until they feel like they want to terminate the set, which may mean that they're not actually going to the point of concentric failure, for example, to the point where they're physically unable to complete a rep, they might just be going to the point where they kind of feel a bit uncomfortable or you know it's burning a bit or whatever and they just decide to stop, which are two different things, right? Now, again, that, that concept of concentric failure is maybe a little bit more objective, but you also have to think like, okay, well, concentric failure basically means the inability to complete a full rep. But we have to also ask ourselves, like, what constitutes a full rep? Um, if someone's still able to get out almost like three quarters of a rep, so to speak, perhaps that's still a stimulating rep. Perhaps that's still useful to do. And so, again, it gets a little bit dicey as to where the line of failure actually is. You know, but regardless, I think it's important to sort of understand what we mean by failure. Now, this, this is really important. It's like a bit more obvious when you're doing like a single joint movement. Like, let's say you're doing a bicep curl or something. I mean, it's reasonably obvious where failure occurs there. But when you're doing something like, say, a squat where you have a lot of major muscle groups involved, you may find that one of those muscle groups reaches failure before the others. And this is important because, firstly, there's, there's safety concerns. Secondly, it means that each muscle group is going to be stimulated to a different degree. Some muscle groups might be going all the way to failure meaning that there's a lot of tension and a lot of stimulus being placed on the muscle fibers in that muscle group. And it might mean that some of the other muscles are still like quite far away from failure and therefore they're not receiving as powerful a stimulus. And so when we're trying to allocate volume and someone's like quads are completely burned out from doing their squats, but their glutes still have another five or six reps left in them, how do we think about it? Uh, is this set of squat equally stimulative of the quads and the adductors and the glutes? Well, no, probably not. One of those muscle groups is failing before the others and therefore receiving a different level of stimulus. So, for example, um, when you see people doing a squat and they aren't technically failing the lift yet, they can still do more reps, but their technique has significantly changed. 
then it means that the stimulus is being shifted to a different muscle group. And sometimes you see this where uh, someone goes down into a squat and then they try and push up and their bum kicks back and they essentially end up doing sort of a good morning squat. What that means is that they've gone down, their quads are sort of too fatigued to continue lifting and they've hit failure. And so what happens is the brain just sort of shifts the emphasis onto the posterior chain to complete a rep. Now, technically, we might not be at concentric failure for the squat there because we can still do more reps. But because our technique has changed significantly and because our quads have actually hit failure, we're now getting in this situation where uh, each muscle group is kind of having a different contribution to the movement. So that's just something to kind of keep in mind when we're talking about failure as it relates to the research. It's not as clear cut as basically saying, well, the research shows that if you go to failure, it's better than not or whatever it is. It's kind of got a lot more nuance to that and it's important to kind of figure out what these definitions are or to be really clear how the researchers are defining things like failure when they're talking about a study or even if you see like a, an infographic or some post on, on social media, like what are we actually talking about when we say failure? Uh, I think the last one I wanted to mention was just like around water and bloating. So I've made a few posts in the past about how certain things can cause your scale weight to increase because of water. So things like stress, or more recently, I made some posts about taking creatine and how it increases water retention in the muscle. And some people kind of have this concept of water retention meaning a certain thing or, or having a certain look to it. So when I say water retention, I think a lot of us probably think, oh, like, you know, water underneath the skin, maybe they associate it with kind of looking a bit flabby or a bit wobbly or a bit puffy or something like that. They kind of have an idea of like edema or something in their head. But when I'm talking about water retention as a result of increased carbohydrate storage in the muscle or you know, creatine dragging water into the muscles. This is something that's only going to make your muscles look bigger and it's actually not going to create a sort of watery or bloated sort of look in terms of like water being underneath the skin, so to speak. So um, again, it kind of is this loaded term, I suppose, but just to kind of explain each of those uh, things that I just mentioned, firstly, the, the carbohydrates and then the creatine, there's a stored form of glucose that exists like in a few different tissues in the body, but mostly in the liver and in the, inside the muscles. And these tissues can store glucose and the stored form of glucose is called glycogen. And every gram of glycogen contains within it some molecules of glucose and some water molecules. So I think the typical uh, sort of saying out there is that if you have a gram of glucose being stored, then there's sort of three grams of water that go along with it to be stored inside the muscle. And so the idea is that our sort of water weight is going up and that's quite changeable, but it's not actually making, so it's going to affect our weight on the scale, but it's not going to really change uh, how our body fat looks, so to speak. In fact, it might make our muscles look a lot fuller and in fact, improve how you look, so to speak. So that's one thing to bear in mind. And it's kind of a similar thing that happens with creatine. Uh, creatine attracts water with it. And when we take creatine as a supplement, it slowly saturates our creatine stores inside the muscle and that brings water with it. Uh, and that will mean that your scale weight's gonna go up, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna make you look watery. And so when we start to talk about uh, water weight and that kind of thing, I think it's important to just kind of understand that we're actually talking about water inside lean tissues. We're not talking about having a bloated belly or 
water underneath the skin or anything like that. Those things can happen if you get really stressed or let's say you have an injury or some kind of allergic reaction or whatever, you can get that sort of puffy looking uh, thing that it, that is associated with a bit more water being attracted to certain areas of the body. But uh, that, that's also quite a temporary thing that doesn't necessarily stick around. And it's quite different to what we're saying when we mean water retention inside the muscle. So I think that was something that popped up a little bit in the comments during those, those social media posts that I kind of wanted to clear up a little bit here. Anyway, I think that's what I had today. Hopefully that's given you a little bit more insight and, and hopefully, I guess the idea is just to kind of make it clear that there are some terms here that are quite loaded in terms of their colloquial meaning. And there are some terms that have a specific meaning from a, almost like a jargon context when we're talking about training with weights. And so it's good to keep an eye on that because a lot of influences or articles you read or even research articles will use a particular term with a really specific meaning. And it's important that we understand the definition of that meaning in context for us to really get the full concept of what they're talking about and to not misinterpret it. If there are any other terms that you think are a little bit confusing that maybe people get the wrong idea with, as I say, send them to me. Let me know. I think I'm going to come across a lot more as I continue with this programming course, but those are some of the main ones that I thought of. Uh, cool. Feel free to send me an email, luke at luketullock.com. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at underscore luketullock, and I'll catch you in the next one. Cheers.